You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. Can someone say yes to you, but really mean no? That question is at the heart of an intelligent, provocative new play, Come On Angie, a play that I saw and loved. I interviewed the two actors who performed in it in episode 193 of this podcast. Today's guest is the talented woman who wrote Come On Angie. She's an award-winning playwright and a graduate of Canada's National Theatre School. Her first play, Rabbit Rabbit, won two awards and has been produced across Canada and the U.S., She was the head digital writer for the CBC drama Strange Empire, which won a Gracie Award for Best Website because of its superb interactive storytelling. Get ready to open and expand your mind with Amy Lee Lavoie. Amy, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's have some fun. Maybe (laughs) maybe we'll even... Have a fight? Who knows? <laughs> oh my gosh! Let's do it. I, aren't you from the, Aren't you from New York, or the Bronx originally? I don't want to fight with you. Yes, I am. I'm from the Bronx. Hello. Oh, hi. Yeah, I just lost the connection for a split second, but that's okay. We're back. <laughs> oh, glad. Yeah, yeah, I'm from the Bronx. Where are you from originally? I'm from a very small town in northern Ontario called South Porcupine, if you can believe that. <laughs> okay, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> no, I'm kidding you. No one believes me, but it's, um, yeah, it's South Porcupine. There is no North Porcupine, but there is a Porcupine, um, and it's about eight-hour drive from Toronto, like northwest of Toronto. South Porcupine. Could that be why you're prickly? <laughs> <laughs> Am I prickly? No. Oh my gosh! No, I was just—I'm just making a joke. I'm just and I've—and ne- I've never actually seen a porcupine in South Porcupine, so <laughs> not quite sure where the name came from. Well, as a woman from South Porcupine, why, when, and why did you become a playwright? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think you know if I go back to uh, the boxes in my parents' basement of all the things they've kept from my days in the school system and just journals and things, it's it's clear that I always had a facility with language and that I loved to write. Um, but I uh, went to Bishop's University with the full intention to become an actor. That was a real dream of mine, and um, <laughs> I was. You know, I was very fortunate to get these great roles on stage. And then, uh, like most actors experience, I was cast in a play in a very small role. Um, and I just didn't feel like I can. Con- I was contributing much. And I didn't feel like myself on stage. And I just didn't know what I was doing. And it wasn't until I took a Canadian contemporary um, play course at the university that I... Um, 
well, I, I started reading and uh, plays in a, in a critical way, in a really thoughtful way. And I thought, you know what? I think this is more me. This is more what I want to do with theater. It's, it just feels um, familiar, and I feel like I can do this. So I took a playwriting class and um, flexed those muscles. And once I graduated, I spent a year um, substitute teaching, and then I applied to the National Theatre School of Canada and miraculously got in, and that started my playwriting journey. I want you to remove only one word from that. You got it. Which word is it? I don't know. (laughs) Miraculously. Oh, Oh, I know. There's that. Well, it did, it honestly, it truly, a little, like a small town girl, getting into the National Theatre School of Canada, which to me had been pitched as this sort of mecca of theatre training and that I had to, you know, work really hard to get there and that it probably wouldn't happen. Um, It did feel like a miracle. Um, And partly because I didn't know what I would do if I didn't get in. So there were so so many stakes involved in... um, in that journey. And I remember in the interview telling them, look, um, I don't have any questions. I just need to tell you that I want this. And if you accept me, I'm going to work my ass off. And I think they were like, oh, okay. Um, But yeah, it did feel like a miracle, which maybe is not a great way to describe it. But um, for me, it did. I think now I go, okay, I, I deserved that opportunity. But at that time, I just thought, oh my gosh, how lucky am I? No, I, I, mean, I, I totally get it. And uh, um, I, I guess I'm sensitive to that because I love it for people to always honor their uh, their gifts. And it's, it's tough for most people to mm. do it. In fact, the more gifted people are, the more challenge they have with that. You're familiar with Marianne Williamson? No. Look her up after. She's a fast. As a matter of fact, she's even running on the Democratic. Uh, she's going to run for president this year. I mean, she. I don't think she knows that she doesn't stand the chance. But she's a a force in American society. The woman has written a number of books. In fact, she wrote a book called um, "Return to Love," which is a reflection on a course in miracles. And she's the one who's famous for this saying that it's not our inadequacy that we're afraid of. It's our greatness. Mm. And she goes on to say that who are we to deny that to the world? I mean, it's really powerful stuff. Look it up. Go Marianne Williamson quotes, and that one will come up. But uh, thanks for sharing that. So what is... Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I'm... I'm surprised that I don't recognize the name. I'm sure if I saw it, that seems strange that I don't know her, but that is amazing. I will look her up for sure. Yeah, she's a, she's really a force. I mean, uh, I've been following her for a number of years, and uh, if she comes to an event like uh, where I'm, uh, if I'm going to, if I see that she's at an event I'm going to attend, I'm definitely oh, going to go and listen to her speak. Mm-hmm. Now, what inspired you to write Come On, Angie? Well, I wrote Come On Angie, I think I it was in and around the, the John Gameshi trial. Um, and I had, it was a point in my life where I had been, I'd been reading and watching and just being inundated with um, 
examples of injustice towards women. And not that that doesn't happen on the daily, but I had just for some reason been just watching and reading so much in a short amount of time. And I became very, very angry. Um, And I just, I sat down and I started writing this conversation between two people as a way to kind of understand why this is so um, sexual assault and um, confusion around sexual consent is so pervasive. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to just write both points of view in the best way that I can. And just as a way to empty out and, and exercise myself of all of these these feelings and this anger about what's what I had been um, absorbing from the media and um, just reading and my friends and, and conversations we were having. And I, I think I had stopped the play, I think it was probably like 95% done. And I just didn't end it. I didn't I didn't finish it. But it felt good to write it. And I just kind of left it in my documents folder for a bit. Um, but that was the, the impetus for me. It was just a, a real kind of call to action to try to understand what was happening and what has been happening for so long. Can you share with our audience, because a lot of the audiences, um, many of the people listening won't be from Canada, mm. uh, put it into a context. John uh, Gameshi, explain a little bit about that situation. So John Gameshi was a popular uh, CBC radio host. I, for some reason, I can't remember the cute. What was the name of his of the of his show? I don't know because I didn't listen to him. <laughs> oh. Oh my gosh, I have to Google this. This is so strange. It's it feels like my brain um uh blocked it out. Um but anyway, he was he was a host of a very popular um radio show and uh it was it, allegations were brought against him. Um that were really problematic sexual assault allegations and uh it was described or explained that he participated in sort of bdsm culture and that it was tricky obviously there's nuance there and there's a lot of um you know there i don't want to i don't want to explain this in a way that's like problematic no, no, no Amy you know let, let, me, let me caution you don't be Canadian <laughs> I know, I'm just trying to think I don't know the de- like I can't remember this the details and I don't want to get that wrong because I don't want to uh, you know what I mean I just basically there was a hu- there was a trial around um this man and there were allegations against him that were really serious sexual assault allegations and um long story short he because of his uh, money and his privilege was able to hire a very um, high-profile lawyer in Toronto, and um, it, he won his case against um, these women. And I and there were some complications around the case because the women, um, again, I don't know the, the the full details, but I guess they had been talking to one another because they didn't trust the justice system to work, which is another huge problem because historically it has um, failed a lot of women and um, you know people in the fringes and minority pe- uh, mi- minority groups and that essentially helped his case and he became he's free and he's 
living his life and he's not in jail. And, and that just sparked an incredible amount of outrage because it just felt like, you know, from the outside that the, that he was clearly guilty and working in the industry in this country, there had always been whispers and rumors about him and people that you knew, a friend that you knew that, you know, had been involved with him or had, he had been very strange with, or, you know, even, um, a problematic experiences within his own workplace, power dynamic stuff that was off. So it just felt like another loss. And that was a tough pill to swallow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. And again, my listeners, my storytellers, when I said to Amy, don't be Canadian, some of you are going, what is he talking about? <laughs> the joke is, it's not really a joke. But we do make a lot of jokes about it. The Canadians can be too polite, you know, um, well, and I, it, yeah, and I encourage anyone who's curious to really um, research the case because the details that I have, that have left my mind, I think in a way, um, on purpose. I think my body just kind of shut out that kind of that case because it was deeply upsetting to me. Um, please research it and 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 have a look so you can get the full scope of of what I can't in this very moment describe. Sure. And so you began writing that play in what year exactly? Oh my gosh! So when did I write it? I think I start. I think I wrote it in uh, 2016. Okay, 2000, end of 2016, early 2017. And did you? Was it performed first in Vancouver? Yes. So. Um, I had, like I had explained that I had left it sort of almost, it was almost done and I hadn't closed it. And I sent it to a friend and just said, hey, is this even worth pursuing past this point? And he wrote, uh, he read it in one sitting and said, you have to finish this play. And so I did. And that draft, that first draft was brought to um, uh, Roy Surrett, who's now the artistic director of Touchstone Theatre, um, former artistic director of Centaur Theatre in Montreal. And he was looking to build out his first season at Touchstone. And um, he programmed that draft. Um, And so we were able to, through the um, Flying Start program, um, which was supported by RBC, um, we were able to pursue a bit of workshop uh, time with the play. So I was able to spend some time with the director and the actors and build it out. and, um, And then it had its premiere uh, last year in June. Fantastic. Now, um, I'll share with the audience exactly what the play's scenario, what, what the, the situation in the play is. So in broad strokes, it, it, it centers around um, a man and a woman who uh, the morning after um, a night of sex um, unpack what has happened. Um, Angie believes that a sexual transgression has occurred and uh, Reed does not believe that. And they spend the next 90 minutes um, trying to figure out where the gaps are in that understanding and really telling their own sides and trying to come to some sort of conclusion so that they can both leave the apartment feeling like you know, 
good about what has happened or bad about what has happened, but Angie is looking for restorative justice. And because they are familiar people to one another, um, it's very complicated. Uh, these, this is not, um, these are not, they're not strangers to one another. So there's a lot at stake, as I, I don't know if I'll go into, just because if you haven't seen the play, those things kind of build up to the experience as you learn it. But it's just essentially two people unpacking um, a night of sex and um, trying to understand what went wrong. And something did go very wrong. You, you know what? Uh, when I did the interview with the actors in Toronto, we stayed away from the specifics uh, this time, I would love for you to go near them for a couple of reasons. Like I said, this is a, a, a podcast that's listened to in many countries. Uh-huh. And A, a lot of the people will never see your play. B, I don't believe that you can talk about exactly what happened in the play and spoil it. for. It's like we don't stop seeing Hamlet because we know what happened in it. That's true. You know, that's true. I'm sort of trained in that way um, because of the last press tour where I was talking, and it hadn't been seen yet by anyone. Right, but I, I, I think at this stage it would be valuable for people to know, and I think it would even make it more compelling for them to want to seek it out and see it. Because mm-hmm. I mean, when I saw it, I mean, like like Amy correctly stated, this was not a one night stand. These were not people who had just met the night before. And then went to bed. They mm. were people who knew each other, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they they had a kind of friendly relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, a lot of that was born out of this idea of fantasy too, and they wanted to pursue that fantasy with one another. Um, but again, the the complications of that is that. Um, she works, Angie works for his wife. So there's the affair that is, that is happening in conjunction with, um, this night of sex and the assault, um, which is the second sexual act that we kind of talk about, um, in the play and, and where the real, uh, conversation centers around and that they have to unpack. So in that, um, Angie confronts Reed and alerts him to the fact that he has assaulted her. He is blindsided by this. Um, and it's because I'm trying to think of the best way to like the synopsis. Of no, this. You know what? You should just say it. Uh, I want you to imagine that you're being interviewed by Howard Stern. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. No, no, really. It's so, it's so hard to, like, I have to, like, disabuse myself of this, like, you know, soundbite thing. You know, I, I would really like to go, look, the, the thing that made the play so compelling to me is because when it begins, Reed, the male character, is under the impression this was a fantastic night of sex and when can we do it again? So yeah. then when out of that, she comes, she opens her mouth and says, you know, you assaulted me. It's not only a shock to him, it's a shock to the audience, and it should be. And that is part of what's exciting. So don't pull any punches here. Tell us what the issue was that made it controversial, because I would like, it's great if the storytellers feeling it are going to go, wait a minute, what? 
<laughs> let them feel that because that's part of the value of this kind of discussion. Yeah. Well, the play, Come On Angie, begins with, um, well, it doesn't begin with, but soon after it begins, uh, Angie confronts Reed with an accusation of assault, sexual assault. And we learn through the unpacking of the night before that she has woke, she woke up with him inside of her and on top of her. So he had sex with her while she was sleeping. And um, obviously this is not okay. And she uh, wants to understand um, why and also to seek from him an admission um, and some accountability. Um, and through doing that, they have a very, very stark, um, heated, vulnerable um, tough conversation about the misread signs, according to Reed, and the ways in which he um, felt entitled to certain things from her in that night. And she deals with a lot of culpability on her side, um, explaining that she might or may or may not have been here in this exact scenario before, um, and why that is. And so it's two characters really. Um, struggling to get what they need from one another and ultimately they can't because if he admits or if he gives her the accountability she's looking for it's an admission of guilt which can be used against him and he's afraid of his life falling apart and um and that's that's it that becomes an impossibility um for both of them. And so it's, it's, and she needs to declare to him and give him some sort of actionable takeaway, like what he keeps asking her, what do you want? What do you want? As if, um, the onus is on her to, um, to give that to him. And again, it's, it's the reveal for her is that she doesn't know what she wants. She doesn't know what restorative justice looks like because this is a betrayal. These are familiar partners. Um, she doesn't want to ruin his life, but to say goodbye and to push it down and not confront him or have the conversation is part of the healing process for her, which makes the whole situation com very complicated because they just can't get what they need from one another. And ultimately the world outside of this apartment isn't nuanced enough for the kind of conversation and the situation that, um, that they've just been through. So, you know, it deals with a lot of male panic, um, guilt, entitlement, and exposes the culture around us as, as a failure for both genders and both people there. Well, thank you so much. I mean, what you just explained to a listener who hasn't seen it, I think will motivate a person to want to definitely see this piece. And may I add my perspective? And if I'm, if you feel I'm not correct, please, you know, tell me so. Okay. No, absolutely. Because what I, for me, just I, for someone who hasn't seen it, what I got was that, yes, she woke up and he was inside her, but that's not how it began. That they first had, they first made love, they had sex, I assume consensually, and then they fell asleep. And then when they woke up, he woke up with desire, and he did enter her when she was asleep. 
But I also got the impression that when she woke up, when she felt him inside her, she didn't say, wait a minute, you've got to stop. And he refused. She was, she went along with it and continued to make love to him. Am I correct in that? Not exactly. So the second time, you're right about, and this is why we talk about the unpacking of the night before, because um, sex has happened, that we kind of talk about sort of the two instances, the two acts. Um, The second time, which was the assault, she woke up having felt that, and the look on her face, which was confusion, um made him get off, he got off of her and stopped um, okay. in an act of, of just total embarrassment and, and feeling like he, he definitely overstepped, but didn't associate that with assault because he explains that it's something that he and his wife um, partake in and that she loves, which is, you know, incorrect as well because if somebody is sleeping, they can't give you consent even if they say, you know, that they like that. Um, and they did have sex before, which was consensual, but also not really because they had both been drinking. So um, it complicates things, but she doesn't hold anything prior to that point against him. She talks about the problems and the sort of, um, you know, that that there were problems before that aren't surprising, she says, but that are typical with um, having sex with somebody for the first time. Um, but he, he explains that his motivations for sort of doing that were because there were so many awkward moments the first time that he wanted to redeem himself in some way. And without the pressure of her and the, and the condom that wasn't working for him, he wanted to prove to her that he was a great lover, which again speaks to this idea of what are, what is going on there and, and, and what is that culture that tells men that they have to be these, you know, Hercules kind of lovers that just take and dominate and um, that that sex is perfect. So, you know, it, it's it's a complicated situation. He's definitely in the wrong, but it, that doesn't take away the nuance and um, and just where these characters are coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I hear you. And as you speak, I mean, I'm totally aware of the, see, the reason I like the play is because, as I told you when I saw it, even if I don't agree with the positions that I'm hearing, I feel that you've raised really important, valid questions that have to be asked on both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I'll be candid, when you just mentioned, you know, where does it come from that a man feels this way? I have no problem telling you that that's part of my psyche too. That mm-hmm. fe- that feeling that, you know, I had better be good in bed because if not, I will disappoint this woman. And, you know, this could be, again, a complete <laughs> a narrative, a story, which is part of what my show is about, that I have grown up with, Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I also want to confess that um, you would not come to me for relationship counseling. (laughs) Trust me, because, you know, I'm really good at many things. I am not Mm. good at relationships. No. I think I think I think a lot I think many people are not good at relationships. You're just admitting that you're not. 
um, it takes it, it's relationships are really difficult. I think of, of course at the core you need trust and respect and honesty. Um, but yeah, these two people, like I, it's difficult. I, I, I hear you. I respect that you're saying this is what I'm saying. Well, thank you. <laughs> now, uh, you don't have to, you can, I'll ask you this question. You can deal with it or not, or deal with it the way you wish. How personal is the situation in the play to you in your life? Um, if you asked, well, surveyed the women in the audience and the men too, which has been an interesting, a really, really interesting conversation, um, the themes that are being explored here are deeply familiar, unfortunately, to most women. Um, and for me, this was an opportunity, like I said, to to kind of step away from, I want to write something totally autobiographical and more write something to help me understand why things have happened. And also to confront my younger self and know that what I would allow and tolerate in my twenties is not some is not what I would allow and tolerate in my now thirties, and that there's so much shame attached to um, the permissive permissiveness that um, I gave to others, um, and and that I think is just an example of like deep seated self hatred, which is again born from a really. Um, or images and media that controls a, a narrative around women and sexuality that is so specific and um, problematic. So that, you know, dealing with that and unpacking that, I think, you know, as you live and you, I, you know, I look at the people in their 20s now and I feel like they're way more, um, I don't know, they're way stronger and way more informed than I was. And maybe that's, maybe I'm wrong about that, but yeah, it's sort of like a, it was an opportunity for me to kind of really look at myself, my younger self and give and give that person a play that, um, that I wish she had. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I think a lot of plays that deal with um, similar themes are unfortunately, like, through the the male point of view or they're these revenge fantasies of of you know a male um character whose sister or mother or girlfriend was um wronged in this way and then they go and they look at they go and search out that that person who's done that and it becomes this revenge fantasy or there were a lot of instances where i was reading things or seeing things where it was the situation the premise was a confrontation that happened 10 years after the fact where somebody confronts their abuser or their, um, yeah, abuser with that much time. And again, like great, amazing, but I had never seen anything that happened in the moment mm-hmm. that was immediate. And that was important for me because I just went, what does that look like? Again, not prescribing that as, as, as a way to deal with these situations at all, because a lot of women are in are in situations where that is not safe. That is not a safe choice. And you know, with working with Wava in Vancouver and the premiere production, they spoke really brilliantly about their work. And they always say the thing you did, how you dealt with it, was perfect because you survived it. 
So there's no prescription of what to do, and this play is not that at all. And there has to the play is designed to have that sort of safety embedded in the fact that these are familiar partners. There's trust there, but I was really curious about what that conversation would happen or how that conversation would happen when you didn't have the time to really um, collect your thoughts or the evidence or you know what I mean where it's like it's it's a conversation that's happening in sort of the moment which I think is way more difficult to harness um, and was really exciting to write and it's very exciting very exciting to watch well thank you I'm glad I'm glad that it was uh, that it's compelling. I mean, yeah, again, it just, it just, I think about my younger self and what I, what I would have wanted for her. And I just wonder if, if she had seen a character who was self-possessed, articulate and relentless in her pursuit of the truth, what that would have done for me. I don't know. I, I don't know. Um, but you know, you write what you want to see and, and that's, and that's sort of the genesis of this play. Uh, I would love to add something from a male perspective. So I totally agree with you that, you know, you look and you say there's this really unhealthy manipulation by the media about how a woman, about a woman's sexuality, dictating what what is sexy, etc. But I feel it's there as strongly for men. I mean, you know, men's images... And what they feel that they should be aspiring toward to really be fully guys, that's been something that if a guy is not strong, he'll go nuts or kill himself in, in, yeah. tra- in trying to compare he, who he is, how his body is formed, how he looks, how he dresses, um, how many quote unquote conquests or not. He has in his life as part of who you are as a man, and and that's societal pressure. Absolutely, and yeah, I I totally understand that, and 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 that's why I wanted to have a play that was balanced um, in terms of point of view, and I wanted each character to have the opportunity to express themselves in in ways that I thought were really truthful and really a tapestry of conversations that I've had with male friends, colleagues, um, girlfriends, you know, everyone. Um, And because I think it's really important, I don't, I don't want to dismiss the men in my life who express problematic views to me. Um, It's like my husband always says, I don't blame people for being ignorant, but it's a different story if they choose to remain ignorant after being educated. And so I think we're both, both genders are really suffering from um, what you've described and what I described. Women are are taught to place their self-worth below men. It's, you know, oh, we have the babies, we're stronger. It's always a strange argument like, oh, you can take it. Men are actually, we're stronger. Just, just don't say anything. Be okay. Be okay. You know, you know you, yes, I know. You just triggered something for me, uh, being in the theater myself and being an actor, uh, that I learned from some brilliant voice teachers, especially one of them was a, a woman, that blew my mind, that a lot of people feel, well, the physical voice that I have, I, that's it. That's what I was born with. I have it because 
that's my body. But what was revealed is that you develop voices for social acceptance, and a lot of women who have voices that make them sound like little kids or little little dolls that that's happened because of a psychological adjustment they're not even aware of it that they've blocked the lower registers in their voice because it's too powerful and it's associated with a man's voice and so they sound squeaky and cute because that's safe and they i mean this woman used to do workshops in voice where women would break down emotionally because she was taking them to uncharted territory, and then all of a sudden, they'd open their mouths, and there was a new voice there. Absolutely. It's it's hard to be who you are when um, there's only uh, a very small example of womanhood represented in the larger um, social zeitgeist. And that women are really punished for exacting power and strength. Um, and, you know, we, it's such a cliche that if a woman is expressing um, themselves in, in, like, a powerful way, that it's it's grating or, you know what I mean? It's just like, it's, but when a man does it, it's, it's effective. It's, you know, asser- assertion. It's being assertive. Um, but a woman is not granted that same, that same... Um, that's what I'm looking for. Permission. Yeah, permission. But but hasn't that changed? I mean, look, we have. Are you familiar with the name Jessica I or Ronda, Ronda Rousey? Yes. Yeah, I mean, these are UFC fighters. I wouldn't want to get into a fight with either of them. You know. Uh, yeah, I mean, but that's also like, yes, but I think those women are also totally objectified in a, in a way, right? And I think. You know, things are changing, but we've got a long way to go, um, for, I, I think. Yeah, we do. We do on both sides, though. I really, mm-hmm. you know, because it's interesting to me. In a way, I'm feeling a swing back to uh, a real conservatism, if not even a puritanism in our society. Don't forget, we had what was called the sexual revolution when everybody, men and women, said, I'm just throwing out all of these social mores that I've been given, or religious mores, and I'm just going to have as much hedonistic fun as I want. Mm. You know, you have the Jefferson Airplane flaunting. I mean, you, you, you've heard, Gracie, that song, Triad? Mm, I must have. I must have. Because, you know, it's it's putting it out there about a threesome, which is, you know, uh, perfectly, hey, it's great, do it, if that's what you feel. And, like, that's a whole different attitude toward sex. And now I think there's a kind of backlash to that as well. Right. Well, yeah, it's really hard. It's like, you know, I, I think if if consenting adults... um should be able to have whatever sex they want. Like I, there's no judgment from me and, and, and all of that. It's, it's just hard. I think there are just d- deeper problems as a backdrop to that, that complicate sex. You know what I mean? Like that 
movement set up against the backdrop of patriarchy, which has been consistent, is makes things harder. And I know, and the play too deals with um, class and um, and discusses power dynamics and power imbalances, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it's just there's so much there's there's so much to think about it. It's really really challenging. But to your point of it going to the sort of Christian Puritan way, I I don't know. I I don't know. I know that people are much more conscious now. I think I was asked a question before about are people afraid to have sex? And I I think if people are afraid to have sex, that means that they're thinking about not, (laughs) they're thinking about enthusiastic consent. They're thinking about not hurting someone. They're thinking about, you know, they're just looking at it from a thoughtful perspective. And I think that's good. I think the pendulum always shifts to the extreme when, social movements are happening and it just we need to be there for it to kind of come to a place that I don't know if we'll ever get there but come to a place where we're where we can exist in 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 a world where this isn't happening like this um that sexual assault isn't so pervasive and um that people aren't as confused or pretending to be confused about um what the problems are here yeah, I, I agree. And by the way, people, um, whatever you're taking from this, I have to emphasize that this play does not bash men. It doesn't bash men. Uh, in fact, a friend of mine had provoked me to see it because he thought that I would come away from it with that feeling. And I didn't. I said, no, it makes me feel uncomfortable, which it's supposed to, but it's not bashing men. Uh, it is raising really important questions. Um no, thank you for that. I, I mean, that to me, I can't, you can't write while judging characters. Do you know what I mean? So, I mean, to me, when it's, I don't, that is, that makes me happy that you are saying that. It's, you it's know, fun. I'm glad you said that too just now because I I posted something that I, uh, Seth Godin sends out these daily things, he's brilliant, and he had this, I had to put it on my Facebook where he said, that basically you can't create and, uh, and and analyze at the same time. They cancel each other out. He says, so mm. create today's, create something today, analyze it tomorrow. So if you're, yeah. an, if you're an artist and you're judging what you're writing, you're going to get what they call writer's block and you're going to stop. You're not going to be able to do it. So you just have to go with it and keep that those voices in your head that want to judge it. Or you end, yeah, or you end up with a product that's totally biased and um, prescriptive, and that's not what this play is to me. This play is um, putting up a conversation and a discussion, and allowing room for an audience to to insert their experiences and themselves into this play and come away with it what they will. You know, there is at the core an undeniable truth that an assault has occurred. Um, and that is non-negotiable for me. But the response to the play and, and the varied responses from men and women, its it's been a fascinating journey. Okay. Um, for wanna, sure. I don't want to jump ahead, but yeah. You no, know, a friend of mine went with his wife. And it was mm-hmm. interesting. His wife said, the guy said, yep, there was an assault there. The wife said, I don't think so. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that's consistent with some of the responses that we've, 
um, experienced. And I, yeah, I find it fascinating. I know my dad is a retired police chief. So um, we even in Vancouver, um, someone, a woman came up to us and, and, and basically told me that she thought Angie was crazy. And wow, that, wow. That, Reed, that Reed was a saint for sitting there and, and indulging her essentially for that long and that she didn't believe a sexual assault had occurred. And my father, who was nodding and said, you know, uh, I just want to say that I have over 30 years of uh, policing experience and I can tell you that that, you know, by law, crim- criminally, that that is, that is an assault. And she just said, you know what, I have over 30 years experience being a woman. How how old was she? She was probably 40. Wow, interesting. But I go, I think all of that stuff is fascinating because I have no, and this is what I mean, you can't, you just, you write the play, you can't write to a specific person or experience because you have no idea what anyone is coming in with or what they've experienced that the play, and I've been told that the play has uh, brought up experiences for women that they have shut out that they acknowledged during the play Hmm. and that they were dealing with and said you know what I didn't think that it was sexual assault and now I don't know anymore um and I had a woman uh confront another thing she wrote a poem about it she uh was able to sort of release what had happened to her and talk about it there were ideas being expressed by Angie that women said they had never seen female characters express ever on stage before, um, you know, which is wholly satisfying and also so sad <laughs> to me. Um, but the play is going to hit people in, in absolutely different ways. And it's, it's you know, I, I don't know if somebody re- reacts really strongly from a woman standpoint and they think that that. Angie wasn't assaulted. I I always go, what has happened, or how how much have you pushed down, or um, have been accommodating from the male side of things that you just don't want to acknowledge, or maybe you just think that, and that's okay too. Well, well you but, know, it's interesting because when you just said that, I'm saying, but that's your bias because you're assuming if she says that that her experience has to be, she's in denial, and that's an assumption. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. she may have a legit look. By the way, guys, what I'm really loving about this interview is that we're not even going by the roadmap of questions that I had. This is just, it's happening spontaneously, and I love it. I love it. Um, <laughs> Sorry. So I'm going to jump in spontaneously again because it's relevant to what we just said. You familiar with the name Nina Hartley? No, that one I am not. I feel so terrible that I'm not. I'm bad with names, though, so I'm sure if you... what, it, Who is she and what... Well, this is, there might be a good reason you don't know her. She is a porn queen. And uh, yeah. the, the reason that I'm aware of her is she's a woman in her late 50s. Mm-hmm. She's been in pornography all of her adult life. She's also educated and extremely articulate. And she's totally unapologetic about her life in pornography. And she even gets invited to schools to go and talk about sex to students. And I'm bringing her up because it would be fascinating. I would love to have an interview with you and her. Because I would just wonder, like, what? As a matter of fact, I have tried to connect with her, but 
you know, she has a she's protected by all sorts of gatekeepers, and I haven't been able to reach her because I would love to interview this person because she is she's the, she'll come out and say, look, I for one am not a victim. I am not in pornography because I'm a victim. I happen to be a person who loves this. So, what do you say to that? You can say, well, well you you know you're in denial, <laughs> you know. I, again, I think it goes back. I, I think she absolutely should be unapologetic about her her choice to do pornography. Again, I, like I said, if if she is consenting, she's an adult and she's consenting to that that work and 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 that life. Then that is absolutely her business. It's none of my business. And I think the differences between, um, you know, th- there are like very stark differences between the play and pornography, but, um. Uh, yeah, like again, I I just go if you have full autonomy to be able to do that. My thing with I don't have like a a grand statement about pornography really, truly. I think um it exists, it's there if if again if it's if it's not harmful, it's consensual and it's um then it's it is what it is. I think for me the sort of misstep there is just I would love the education system to be a bit more advanced and adopt better education for young men and women and that they're not um young men are not seeing porn or seeking porn for education before um you know other things because i think that also can promote mainstream porn unfortunately because there's a lot of branches of porn that are great feminist porn like you know what i mean like it's it's very healthy and then there's examples that aren't as healthy oh, yeah. promote, like, absolutely really problematic um uh, power dynamics between men and women that you know just aren't representative of what real sex is like and mm, so you're mm-hmm. getting these men and these women who are trying to mimic things that are just i don't know it's just like fiction <laughs> i don't know i don't know how else to describe it no i know i know exactly what you mean and yeah. and, and some of it is really hateful i mean it, it some of it is is anti-human Yes, and yeah. that, those are the, those are the prisms and the, and the streams that I'm talking about that I don't condone. Um, but there's also healthy porn. And pornography is just such a broad term. Um, but yeah, and I think if this woman is, if again, if she's engaged in consensual sex with other adults and she's happy with that, and and then that's her business. Um, I don't know. I yeah, I just don't have too much to say about porn other than that. Um, but she, I, yeah, I think it's I, there's a, a, a documentary filmmaker that I know, Sean McDonald here, who did. She, I think she just released a, a documentary about a sort of leader in in feminist porn. And um, oh wait a minute, I may have met her. Who, who is she? Oh really, is Shona? She? I always say her name incorrectly. Shona. Let me. No, no, that's not, that not the one. No. There's one. She's she works in Europe, but she was here for a pornography festival. And I did meet her. She she works with her husband. It's quite interesting. But they shoot porn films. Really, I have it here. So it's um, I think it's called uh, documentary. Um, I stripped away the X-rated layers of a former vanguard in the world of adult films to reveal that there was a lot more to the story of Candace Videla than just the selling of sex. And that's really interesting, right? You have a female documentarian who is pursuing a story about feminist porn and um, 
people within that industry who found a real need for that um, and that great lovers of sex and healthy sex and all of that. So I, I, I can't wait to see it. Now, this was a different name altogether. Uh, she actually did a TED Talk. I mean, it was quite interesting about promoting pornography. Um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, this was a few years ago. She came to Toronto. They had this festival. It was a, in fact, I went to the film festival to the, mm. and I swear to God, I could have fallen asleep. That's how, it was so, <laughs> the films were so boring to me. I go, are you kidding me? Yeah. No, yeah. but that, that's, you know, what I said. At any rate, uh, I want to interject something here. Uh, you may have heard this because you're in the world of theater, mm-hmm. but I have been an acting teacher and I'm friends with actors who are teachers today. And the consensus that I'm getting is that it's becoming very tough to really have a very creative environment around acting, teaching in the classroom today because of this climate. That, for instance, when I used to direct scenes, many, many plays, especially contemporary ones, are not only overtly sexual, but they're deviant sexual. Mm-hmm. And I would, I felt totally uninhibited within the context of the art to speak openly about it and even to challenge students to go farther and to take risks. And today, like I, a friend of mine is teaching a program at Humber mm-hmm. and he said, Lewis, he said, there are plays and scenes I can't even bring in anymore. And for instance, like you get a play like, um, I wouldn't want to be directing people in in extremities mm-hmm. because I wouldn't know how to talk about that safely without maybe making someone feel uncomfortable and then later getting charged for the things I said. And mm-hmm. and and that's the, the in fact I was listening to a, a podcast yesterday with Alec Baldwin talking to his teacher from the actor studio and it's funny he brought up the same thing he he raised it as a question he says you know how, how are you finding it like because mm-hmm. i mean the, the things that lee strasberg would have said to students he, he'd be in jail today yeah and and again like i think because there were examples and precedents of so many um examples of abusive behavior in theater schools because they're not governed by the same rules. It's artistic. It's, you know what I mean? There's more leniency and, and we're doing art and they're, we're, we're tackling really troubling things and actors are having to embody those vulnerabilities and really stretch themselves. And there was some gray area there, but there was also a lot of problematic um, stuff happening. And I think, I think in today's age, um, I think these conversations are great and I think if you're ever unclear or unsure, you have these insecurities. This is my rule of thumb and, and how I approach writing too, is just always engage the communities um, and the experts in the fields that you need to and really employ them in the situations that you're in. There are, int- there are intimacy coaches. There are, um, 
people who have um, who are deeply educated in um, like we had somebody come in for the talkbacks for Come On Angie um, who had a lot of experience um, dealing with the themes that were, were explored in the play and she was able to sort of curate the conversation in a safe way. I think that these things can coexist. I understand what you're saying. Um, absolutely. It just takes a little more creativity and a little more engagement. Um, but I think we can get there. And I, and I, and I also go, well, what are these pieces that, that are being brought in and why, why are they, why do you think that they would be bringing those, um, those questions to the forefront of the conversation or to the room? Um, those are also good questions. Like, what are the stories you're wanting to tell? What are the scenes you're wanting to work through? And, 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 and just, and if there's a reason for them, then yeah, I'm just employ the people um, in the community that can help you and help the students feel safe and everybody to feel good about the work that they're doing. Well, let's talk about a classic uh, with Tennessee Williams' uh, Streetcar Named Desire. Sure. I mean, you know, you've, uh, certainly in today's world, Stanley Kowalski would be sitting in a prison cell. Mm-hmm. But, but, yeah, but I, but within the context, it, it's a but it's a yeah. Sorry, go ahead. But okay, and I think he did rape uh, Blanche, and mm-hmm. that's not. I don't condone that. But my challenge would be directing that play. There's such an unbridled sexuality in the characters that I would feel very uncomfortable even getting the char- the, the actors student actors for sure to go near it i mean mm-hmm. stanley is basically a sexual animal mm-hmm. and and even his relationship with his wife there's a primitive kind of sexual energy there mm-hmm. and, and so to do those scenes without making them polite because they're not polite requires going near dangerous territory and, mm-hmm. and I'd be, and, and in this climate, I'd be reluctant to do that. I'm glad I'm not in a school teaching that right now. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, it's one of those things where you go. It's it's a classic play. I love Tennessee Williams. Should I just switch out that scene study? Do we put on this play right now? Do we like? Is this the play we need in 2019 right now, or can we um, look for opportunities to put on plays that are really confronting the issues? And not all, of course, not all plays have to be doing that. But I think it's interesting because you're feeling those things that the the impetus to do those plays would be very strong and um, just things that are different and new and that aren't putting you in those positions. You know what I mean? Because, yeah, in 2019, you are looking at plays, you know, from a different context. I, I, I was just in New York with my husband, who's a, an actor and fellow writer, and we saw a production of All My Sons um, at the Roundabout Theater starring Annette Benning and Tracy Letts. And there were a couple of things going on in that production that were um, interesting. And p- one of the things that I found really interesting just, and again, it's fine because within the context of that time period, it makes sense. But that Tracy Letts, I forgot, kept referring to Anne, who was a child living next door to him his whole life. <laughs> he kept saying how nice her legs were. And then she would sit on him. And like, again, my 2019 eyes looking at that is like a bit salacious. Mm. 
but because I'm going, I'm, I'm me as 34 and I don't know. And I'd seen the production, um, I think done at the national theater school of Canada years before, and that didn't stand out to me. Um, and also in that production, they had employed some colorblind casting, which I don't feel like is a real thing. Um, color conscious casting is good, but my husband wrote this whole article about that and, um, which he thought was really, really interesting. I don't know how relevant it is, but it's just about choices because the, he wrote this article about how that is a form of racism and, and erasure and, and erases um, history, like black history, because two of the characters were black and they were just sort of, it was one of the neighbors was in an interracial relationship, but in this time period for that play would have been a huge deal and it wasn't dealt with because the play can't support that choice. You know what I mean? So it's the intention of, well, we want to make sure that we're providing opportunities to diverse actors, but we're not doing the work. No, I I, I totally agree. I mean, I can imagine right now, um, Olivier played Othello, and I saw that years and years ago. Now, today, if a white actor wanted to play Othello, um, there would be a huge outcry. Huge. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, Shakespeare has written very few black characters and to give that to a white, like, I mean, it just, I mean, I can't even imagine it happening today. It would just be, I mean, I can, um, but it's just so. Well, but here's, here's the argument. Okay, good. I'm glad we're having this. Can I I get my husband in here? Cause he'd be great. (laughs) Sure. Sure, man. It's, it's fine. Is he in the house? Yeah. Hold on. Let me see. Omari. Let me grab. I'm just going to grab him. Can we pause for two seconds? I don't want you to grab him. I want you to call him. Call him? Yeah. Um, <laughs> he hear me. He's in the house. Omari. Oh, he's got his headphones on. He's on the treadmill. Oh. Can I, can I just grab him? Yeah. I'm playing with you. I say grab, grab. You shouldn't be grabbing anybody. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, I will gently um, guide him to sure, where I am. Sure, sure. <laughs> Give me two seconds. It's just audio. Oh, my God, I'm so excited about this. Are you there? I'm here, yeah. Let's see okay. if we can get a clear sound from him. Okay, let me see. We're just going to share headphones. Hello? Hi. Hey, how are you? Good, and you? Good, good. Um, I, we were discussing, he was, ta- he was talking about um, the insecurities around scene work and as an acting teacher bringing in scenes that are heavily sexualized or plays like Streetcar Named Desire which has a you know very problematic relationship between Stanley Kowalski and Blanche and even his wife mm-hmm. and I was saying you know it might be a time maybe we retire that play for a time or and I explained the All My Sons thing so mm-hmm. there's well, the context well I mean without context all I can say is I I wrote an article based on a response to the Broadway revival of All My Sons with Annette Benning and Tracy Letts. And my observation was uh, they employed colorblind casting in that production, which I think is a form of racism and erasure. So can, me, can, you, can you explain specifically how, what that looked like in the play? Sure. So the, the characters of George and, and Anne, uh, who are brother and sister, and for those who, who are familiar with the play All My Sons, uh, it centers around uh, an incident where uh, the the matriarch of a family built weapons for World War II. He built a, so he built up parts for airplanes, and he shipped off uh, defective parts, which ended up killing 21 American pilots. And the you know the crux of the play is whether this was done deliberately or not. 
And as a result, he and his underling, uh, or his, his employee, I should say, ended up going to jail. Uh, but the one of them ended up coming out earlier. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a complex drama. And, and in the production that we saw, uh, they had two black actors. One of them played uh, the wife of, of a white man who was the neighbor of the, the main character. And one of them played the brother of uh, one of the children whose father went to jail in conjunction with the, the parts being sold. So what was confusing was for the first half of the play, we met the daughter. And then, you know, about an hour in, this black man enters and they just say, that, oh, this is my brother. And the night I was there, the entire audience was, was confused because, one, just from a from perspective of optics, it was confusing to see this black man. And for me, the deeper issue than just the visuals was the fact that the play takes place in 1947, Ohio, shortly after the end of World War II. And, you know, with a tertiary knowledge of, of racial politics in America at that time, you know that, that you know, interracial marriage was illegal in, in, in most of America until the Supreme Court ruled on it in the Loving case in 1967. Uh, and there was just no big deal whatsoever made about the fact that there was an interracial marriage, about the fact that apparently a generation before that there was an interracial marriage that resulted in uh, children that were of different races, and it just ended up uh, distracting from the core issues of the, of the play, race not being one of those issues. Hmm. And then after, after doing a bit of digging, I discovered that the original director wanted to cast both the brother and sister as black, but the Miller estate vetoed the idea, saying that it would be introducing elements of the play that weren't originally in the script, which is not wrong, but what she, what ended up happening was something far more confusing. Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm wrong, but I think when you first started talking, I heard you say the matriarch of the play, and but it's the patriarch who was... The, Did I say the matriarch? Uh, you may have. I, I'll oh, see. sorry. I, I meant the I meant the patriarch. It was the, the character played by Tracy Letts. That's okay sorry. because if you did, it's totally appropriate to what kind of conversation we're having. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. But, but you know, but I, I was saying now that I, I agree with you about that. That I was saying, I use the example of Othello. I remember when uh, Olivia played Othello, mm-hmm. and. Amy's response was, well, you know, he wrote so few roles for uh, of black actors that it would be a shame if a white actor did it. But I'm going to play the devil's advocate and say, if it's truly acting, truly acting, if a white person can play a black, then what's the issue? Mm-hmm. Well, the the issue uh, in the case, I mean, this is a bit of a, a separate issue, but it is it is connected. The issue in the case of Othello is when you have white actors playing black actors, usually they employ the use of makeup to darken the skin, which harkens to a legacy of blackface, which was, you know, an insidious form of dehumanization on stage of black people that that is part of America's history. So, one, as a black man, it would be impossible for me to see a production of Othello with a white man with darkened skin that didn't remind me of the times of blackface and and exclusion when we weren't allowed to be on stage and we had white people portraying us in ways that were meant to intentionally dehumanize us. Right. So there's that issue. And then further than that, in in the case of whitewashing roles, because there are so few roles in Shakespeare for black people, if you take one of the two and give it to a white man, it seems like you're, you're, you know, giving away one of the 
only opportunities that assures a black man get cast in a, in a brilliant classic work and you're giving it to a white person. So it's, it's doubly problematic. Yeah. Okay. I, I hear you. You know, uh, I, I won't argue with that. Um, the other example I was going to use about, uh, oh, so I'm going to, I'll be very excited to see Glenda Jackson play King Lear. Now, yes, we just, we missed it, but it, we were in New York. We missed it. Oh, it's there now? I think so. Now, what about if a guy wanted to play Cleopatra? A guy wanted to play Cleopatra? Well, in, in an extended piece I wrote for, for YVR Screen Scene, basically what I said was, I have no problem with non-traditional casting. If you're going to do uh, color-conscious casting or gender-conscious casting, where you do a gender switch, like, for example, I think the public in, in the UK did a production of Julius Caesar that was set in an all-female prison. Uh, and they cast, I think it was was a Mark Antony, they cast a black woman, and it was all women. And So if you're doing a production... And and to your point, there is a production of Streetcar Named Desire with the first ever trans actor playing Blanche Dubois. Right. So, so yeah. yeah I, mean, I have no problem with that. Hmm? Yeah. No, I, I have no problem if you're conscious of the fact that you're, you're changing roles, and then if you follow through with the ramifications of changing the race or gender of a character. What I have a problem with, which I find is like insulting to the intelligence of the audience, is casting, let's say, a family where one, one sibling is Asian, one is black, one is Arab, and we're all supposed to pretend that we don't notice this, we don't see this, and the, the world that they exist in, particularly if it's pre-civil rights era America, this would be totally okay. It, it, right, right. Ridiculous. I, I could just imagine um, a view from the bridge, and, and, and they cast the black guy as, as Eddie Carbone. I'm not that familiar with that piece, but I... I, well, I, know, I know what you're saying, yeah. Well, what's fundamental to it is that this guy is old-school Italian, like right. to the bone. And, yeah. you know, it's it's just part... It, it was an Italian family, and, and and it involves bringing over other Italians in the family mm-hmm. illegally into the country and all of that mm-hmm. stuff. So... Being well, Ita- being Italian in that piece is significant, you know? Well, Absolutely. And, and, and this is the problem that myself and a lot of artists of color have, is that when it deals with white identity, the specificity which is which is called for, and justifiably so, it would be absurd, like, as you said, to have, you know, a black man uh, who did not read his Italian playing uh, an Italian character. But when it comes to the legacy and the history of uh, African Americans, they seem to be more fast and loose with the details. And for me, in that conversation of what we should be consciously programming and what scenes we should be doing, and I just always go, there are so many examples that we can pull up of a view from the bridge and these great roles for white people. And mm-hmm. but let's just embolden POC writers and sure. um, you know people who have not historically had the chance to tell their stories and let's program those and experience those and, for a time, you know? And on the other side of the spectrum, imagine going to see uh, August Wilson's Fences and having the main character played by a white man and asking the audience just to accept that this is a black man because they're such a good actor. No, it would be ridiculous. I, mean, I love it. Uh, <laughs> or, or even, like, have you ever seen August Wilson's Jitney? No, I haven't seen Jitney. Oh, oh my God. Wow. Mm-hmm. I've seen yeah. it, I think... Let me see. I've seen it at least two times, different productions mm-hmm. in New York. But it is so 
immersed in black culture, and they have to oh, be. They've got absolutely. to be black characters, you know. Absolutely. absolutely. Ma Rainey is like most of his work is, and this is the other thing that I that I that amazes me is people, you know, in response to my article were like, "Well, then you're just saying that we shouldn't produce those plays, or that we're excluding uh, African Americans from these great roles." And I go, "There are great writers who wrote about that time period." who have work that if you want to make commentary about that, uh-huh. produce August Wilson. Uh-huh. Arthur Miller is a genius. August Wilson is a genius. Like, the, you know, there's we can live in a world where you produce plays that exist where there's in, in neighborhoods that are racially specific. I, I think this is kind of the absurdity if you take liberalism and, you know, social justice politics to its extreme. You, you risk just losing the authenticity of stories for desire to to be politically correct, which in my mind is driven by white guilt. Yeah, I I agree. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, Very, very interesting stuff. So we went from sexuality to race. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Listen, I'm a New Yorker, so... And not only that, I'm Italian-American, grew up in the Catholic culture. Mm. So if people say, what are the things that are most important to you, I just say sex and violence. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> on, on, on a semi-related note, as, as Amy knows and she always jokes about, Martin Scorsese is one of my favorite directors. Right. I've probably seen, I've seen Goodfellow a million times. And I remember there was a debate happening in cinema a few years ago where people were like, you know, Martin Scorsese and Tarantino have characters that say the N-word and it should be, these films should be expunged. And I go, if I'm watching a, a, an Italian mafia movie, and they're not saying the N-word, I would be more confused. <laughs> you know what I mean? Of course. You know? and, and it, like, authenticity of voice is the craft of writing. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. we lose sight of that when we, when we get too wrapped up in progressive politics. Well, what's, what's very interesting is that you get a, a, a very um, strong personality and um, a person who stands strongly, has a strong position on race, like... Samuel Jackson, who does those films, he's, he's, you know, if he felt there was a problem, he wouldn't be doing those movies. Of course. Well, there was, there was a famous story on the set of Django Unchained where between takes, DiCaprio was coming up to him apologizing, you know, he was playing a slaver and he kept apologizing for the words he was saying. And Sam Jackson was like, look, dude, do your job. You're, you're coming to me for like absolution is making everybody's job harder. You're playing a character, just get on with it. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised that DiCaprio felt that way. I mean, um, now I'm glad you're bringing it up because as an actor, I'm very solid with that. And if I, I play a lot of mobsters. And uh, as a matter of fact, I did a film not long ago where I had to front off with a, uh, a leader of a black, he was a black Coke dealer. And it got ugly. The scene really got ugly. And when we were improvising in on camera, I threw the N word in his face deliberately. And 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 he's an actor. He's an actor. uh, Eugene. He's. You might know him. He's. He was. He was in Top Cops. Very wonderful, wonderful actor. And he 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 loved it. He just dealt with it. Because right. my my character would have said what sure. I said, you know. Sure, I think that was a brave choice in the truest sense of the word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it certainly is because Eugene used to be a pro football player, and he's huge. And, 
it's his name is Eugene Clark. You know who I'm talking okay. about? Eugene Clark, do you know him? No, I don't. Oh, look him up. He's got. He's a force, man. The guy's a force. Um, uh, so, yeah, so, I know. I, 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 you should. Uh, I was just thinking, you should interview Omari. He's like, I, I'll send you his stuff later. But he's, yeah. Anyway, I just thought he'd be a great perspective on what we were talking. Yeah, about. I'd love to do that. I mean, listen, I was a big fan of uh, Leroy Jones, you know, um, uh, in the sixties. But I don't know if some people realize that when he wrote, you know, you know that play, The Slave. Uh, I don't know that one. I'll check it out. Well, what's interesting is you have a black character who is now the revolution in America. The racial war has already exploded. That's the scenario. Mm-hmm. The black guy had been married to a white woman. Mm-hmm. He, he left her, and she's now married to a white intellectual. Huh. And he, the black revolutionary breaks into their home during the war and he has a conversation with this professor this white professor and he says something to me was shocking for Leroy Jones to say he said the truth is that when we take over only the complexion of tyranny will change wow I said that is cynical man that is like yeah you know, uh, but and I think part of it was autobiographical too, because Leroy Jones was married to a white Jewish woman, but after he came back from Cuba, he changed his name to Imamu Ramiri Baraka, and he divorced her. Oh, so he also wrote the Dutchman. Oh, Dutchman is the most famous one. I love that piece. Because when you said Leroy Jones, I was like, I, it sounds familiar, but I know Amiri Baraka's work. Okay, that makes sense to me. Mm. Okay. Well, Dutchman and the Slave are in one anthology because they're both they're, they're both one act plays. But Dutchman, to me, is one of the great American plays. I mean, it really yeah, is. And, it, and I mean, if we can get into right. this, I do an interview with you because I think he mm-hmm. he really pulls on the work of Franz Fanon. You're familiar mm-hmm. with, you know? Yep. Uh, yep. Who basically Black skin, white mask, wretched of the earth. And, yeah, because yeah, basically the message in there was. I, I mean, you remember in Dutchman when the, when Clay Clay Williams explodes and he says he says all you finger popping O'Fays going around talking about how hip you know you are in the blues and all that he says you don't realize that if Bessie Smith is only really saying in her songs kiss my black ass yep. and and if and if and if what was it Lester Young had gone up to Seventh Avenue and stabbed the first ten people he saw. That would have made those songs that he wrote unnecessary. Uh-huh. Wow. Yep. Okay. Yep. <laughs> well, it, it was good it was good talking to you. I sorry it was, it was kind of a, an impromptu thing. I'll be more prepared next time. I gotta go read my uh, Amiri Baraka again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, good, good good meeting you then. Good meeting. Yeah, you too. Okay. I'm taking the ear, but bye. So there we go. And I don't care. We've gone way over the time that I normally do, but this is good. It's okay. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and also, if it, you know, one of your questions is what you're working on next. It can yes. tie it in because I am working with Omari on my next piece. So, What is it called? Because I saw it. It's so we, um, what I'm working on now, we've been given the um, a silver commission from the Arts Club Theater. We were also given a, um, a an amazing grant from the Canada Council uh, to develop a piece called Redbone Coonhound. Um, 
is that I'm co-writing with my husband and fellow writer, and it's uh, five mini plays that are thematically linked to the Redbone Coonhound Dog, and it's a play that uh, tracks racial microaggressions, big and small, throughout history and into the future. Okay, so, so it's a big know, undertaking. There was a moment there when it got a little blurred in the sound. You said the red, the, the tr- start again with the it, the tradition of the explain the title yeah i'll um i'll just say the i could just say that again the sort of like it what it's about so the play is called redbone coonhound which is a dog and um the play is split uh, split into five mini plays and it tracks racial microaggressions big and small throughout history and into the future and the play was inspired by the fact that we, Omar and I were out for a walk, and there was a man who walked by us with this beautiful reddish-brown-colored uh, dog. And I kind of knew he was a bit of a hound, but Omar, he took a, a real liking to my husband. And uh, Omari asked the owner, what, oh, what kind of dog is this? And he said, oh, it's a red-bone coon hound. And my husband's face kind of fell um, and when he left, he said, did that man say that was a Redbone Coonhound? Obviously, those are very loaded terms. Of course. Uh, for black of course. Man. Of course. <laughs> and, I, and I said, I said, yeah, it, it, that is the name of the dog. And so we did some research on it. And it, it's the, the word like a Coonhound is actually in reference to raccoons, which they were bred to hunt. Right. But of course, there's a legacy there that, you know. Yeah, of course. The slave trade, and we, and we start, we it, it sort of inspired this idea for a play, um, just to talk about the the impact of language again, racial microaggressions, and just to track our experiences in the world as an interracial couple. And it was an opportunity for us to write this this piece together, and we've been wanting to do for a while. So that's what I'm working on next. It sounds fabulous. Look, you're a wonderful writer. Um... Um, the world deserves and needs to hear what the things you have to say, and you, you say them in a very compelling way. So that's fabulous. Thank you. Yeah, you're very kind. It was so nice to meet you at the play, and I wasn't supposed to go that night. Well, there you go. <laughs> and, and 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 listeners, by the way, yes, this this is a longer interview than I normally have. And guess what? We haven't even done half the questions, but it doesn't matter because I think that what came up was just great spontaneously. No, I'm sorry. We kind of again. I'm also half Italian, so are you? We, really? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. My mom's Italian, and my dad's French Canadian, so that's why I kind of look Black Irish. Oh. French Canadian, it makes me very pale, and my mom, and then I have the very, very dark hair and complexion. What what part of Italy is she from? Uh, Calabria. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Where are you? What's your family? Where's your family from? Oh, uh, they're uh, Napolitano. It's the, oh. I mean, not the city of Naples, but it's the province that is considered Napolitano. They're, they're, 200, no, 250 kilometers south of Rome and not far from Naples. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for uh, chatting with me. Thank you. I mean, you know, it's, uh, uh, where, where is your play going to be done next? Come on, Angie. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it's kind of all over the place and in, in the hands of, uh, you know, 
people and um, hoping to get another production in other parts of the world. But I know that there's a real interest in remounting the production in Toronto, which is, I think, um, something that we would love to, to have happen. The place should be in New York, too. Yeah, that's that's some that is actually an area that I have not gone to yet. So maybe I will. <laughs> I no, wasn't no. there. I should have shopped it around. Oh, really? Really? I mean, I it would definitely, I think, attract a, a very good audience there. Yeah, I would love to. Yeah, it's again. We're gonna uh, with this new production and the response that we had. It's all about brute packaging and repackaging. So. Um, what you know? What Me Too has done, the second wave of Me Too, um, is really in, uh, given writers, female writers, male writers, whoever, an opportunity to tell stories um, that deal with themes similar to Come On Angie. And so that's something that we've been encountering too. That each regional kind of play theater has um, plays that are that are tackling these kinds of topics, which I think is great. Um, and 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 very exciting because it just adds again to that that tapestry of conversations that are happening around the world and bringing light to this these these themes and these issues. So it's good. Yeah, and in the United States, I mean, that's where a lot of this is really at the forefront too. So these issues are on you know, especially with the current administration in the United States? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you wonder why with somebody <laughs> holding that kind of power and the allegations against him that have conveniently been swept away. But yeah, I mean... It, why? It, well, because, listen, he told us why before he was elected. He said, I can walk onto Fifth Avenue, shoot someone, and I will get away with it. Yeah, the Boulevard that, of Green Lights. That's the man who said it. So yeah, um, no, exactly, and that's and but that's what I mean when people are confused. Like, why does this happen? You kind of go, well, look at look at the the example of power, the extreme power that we have, and the permission that that he has to just sort of do what he wants to do. It's awful. Well, that would that that begins a new podcast thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's let's start an. Oh gosh, yeah. I don't think I have the energy <laughs> to start it on him. So, will you but, keep me posted about your work, please? I will absolutely yes. And I'm going to also reach out to your husband. We can uh, probably do an interesting, provocative conversation. Uh, I, what I didn't get to mention to him is that for a while I was studying black literature. Oh my gosh, that's awesome! Well, yeah, I'll the, I'll send you his his work and his um his art his latest article. Yeah, and I, when I was in New York for a while, I was in a program teaching some very radicalized black students, some of whom had affiliated themselves with the Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. And they were constantly in my face trying to literally break my spirit. One of them told me at the end of the semester, he said, I tried all semester to break you, and I couldn't. And that's why I like you and respect you. Wow. Oh, yeah. That's so interesting. Mm. And not related, but sort of related. Omari is actually the voice of Black Panther in the Marvel cartoon. That's fantastic. It's, it's his childhood dreams. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, and have a lovely weekend. Yes, indeed, Amy. Thank you, storytellers, for being part of this experience today. 
enrich others by letting them know that they can hear this too on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, and at the website changeyourstorypodcast.com. At the website, you will find a free gift that I've created for you, a downloadable ebook called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. You can get instant access to it right now by going to changeyourstorypodcast.com and downloading your free copy. Also take advantage of the gift that our sponsor Audible is offering to the listeners of this show. That is a free audiobook of your choice, and you get to choose from more than 180,000 titles. Simply go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. In the spirit of giving, I'm going to ask you to give me a few more moments of your time by going to iTunes and in the podcast category, finding Change Your Story, Change Your Life. And where you see that you can leave a brief review and a star rating, in the review, just state what your biggest takeaway was from today's episode. And I hope that I've earned a five-star rating from you. When you do that, you're telling iTunes to allow the show to climb the ranks. Then more people will find it and be able to enjoy it. If you haven't already subscribed to the show and you're getting value from it, then subscribe while you're visiting iTunes. One final thought. Whenever you find yourself facing a decision that's hard to make, stop. Don't let your mind work hard. Just take a deep breath and then ask, how can I change my story and change my life? Then pause for a moment and allow the answer to come to you. I look forward to sharing another enriching experience with you on the next episode. Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.